Good evening. I'm Joseph Martinez, and welcome to Dead Time Stories, a podcast by Graveyard Shift dedicated to telling just that. Short, scary stories submitted by real people. Whether the stories are real or not, who knows? But they are scary. Tonight, our host, Deadhead, shares with you four stories from the victims of serial killers. Now, please forgive me. I can take you no further. But your stories lie just ahead. Proceed through this doorway, up the stairwell, and then into the attic. Your host awaits. Do be careful, though. Deadhead can be irascible. I'll wait for you here. Godspeed. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cadavers, you look rested since we last met. Maybe too well rested. The house we're in now will change all that. What say we explore together? Tonight, we're going to hear four stories from some special guests who all have something in common. They've met a serial killer. Our first storyteller is called Martin, and his tale is a new friend indeed. My name is Martin. Martin Hersberg. I am a simple man. I have a family, a home, a business. I have worked hard for it all. And I would do anything to keep it. Anything. My family and I moved to Chicago in 1891. We were in New York before that. And before that, Romania. But we don't talk much about those days. I consider myself a good man, but... I've done things I am not proud of. Like I said, I'd do anything to protect my family. My wife always jokes that there was no life before America. Sometimes, I feel the same. I love this country. It has given us so much. When we first settled in Chicago, I didn't know what I was going to do for money. I had a series of odd jobs. I cleaned, I did construction, I worked as a train car operator. After a seemingly never-ending rough patch, I eventually opened my own sandwich shop. It was difficult at first, but I was able to make it grow. You meet all kinds of people when you run a sandwich shop. Good people, bad people, nappy people, rude people, all kinds. After I'd been in business for a few months, I started to develop regulars. You know. The faces you see every couple days. It was nice having people's orders memorized, so when they came in, I could order to be making their food. It's those extra touches that make sure you'll be able to keep your business afloat. Before I knew it, I'd befriended some of my customers. A simple dock worker named Michael, a single mother named Rebecca Rubstall, and many others. 
One of those individuals was named Aldrich Kinsberry. He would show up every Wednesday, regular as clockwork. A middle-aged man with tightly drawn features. He had a very peculiar smell. It was unmistakable. It was unsettling initially, but I got used to it. One night we were out on the town for a much needed break from both work and my family, and he asked me if I had realized how hard I worked. He said, the world is filled with people who don't work as hard as you. Does that ever make you angry? I said that it didn't. I liked earning what was mine. Aldred shook his head knowingly. I think it will eventually. His eyes twinkled in the darkness of the tavern. I didn't know exactly what he was saying at that time, but it would become clear to me in the future. One night during our late night drinking rendezvous, I asked him what he did for a living. He said that he had procured cadavers for medical reasons. I didn't know what that meant at first. He had to explain that he supplied the local medical school with bodies of the recently deceased. I had my initial dismay over such an ungodly occupation. He could tell that I was disturbed and smiled wryly. Over the course of the next few months, my life systematically fell apart. My eldest daughter fell ill, <coughs> my sandwich shop closed, and I was back to the streets doing anything I could to keep my family together. Late one night, after weeks of just barely being able to keep everything afloat, I heard a sharp rap at my door. I answered it to find Aldridge. Without asking, he barged in. He pulled me into the study. He began to feverishly talk as if possessed. He relayed a devious plan, one which begged the question, how far was I willing to go to protect my family? Of course, I couldn't entertain his ideas. They were rooted in blackness and evil. I'd given up on that part of my past. I was in America now, the land of opportunity. I should not have to make these choices anymore. And yet, I didn't know how I was going to provide for that which I held most dear. On his way out of my home, we shook hands. His skin was cold and his fingers were bone thin. I had asked him what had happened since we last spoke. Why he had proposed such a nefarious act. He told me that he had fallen on hard times. Rats had taken up in the walls of his house. He didn't know what to do. He was dead broke. He clutched my shoulder, staring deeply into my eyes. I promise, I can solve both our problems. Think on it. I didn't know how to respond, but what ensued was undoubtedly the biggest regret of my life. Over the next four months, I concocted a scheme to, well, there's no other way to put this, to commit insurance fraud. With Aldridge guidance, I convinced a former patron of my sandwich shop to go into business with me. I charmed him into procuring a life insurance policy on himself, naming me as the beneficiary. His name was Michael Flannery, a dock worker. No family, no friends, no one to miss him. He was the perfect mark in this regard. If anyone questioned our insurance plan, we would just tell them that we wanted to leave a fail-safe in place. In case something went wrong. The plan was, is that we would fake his death using one of Aldridge's medical cadavers. We would collect the money, and we would split it three ways. 
We meticulously planned this for the duration of the four months. Things were going well. Nothing could go wrong. It was foolproof. Or was it? The night before, I was a nervous wreck. I was so afraid something beyond my control would cause the authorities to discover our plot. I left my house around seven and made my way to Aldrich Place. We had a plan that would require Michael to stay there for a few days. Afterward, Aldrich would plant one of his cadavers in the river. I'd identify him as Michael in the morgue and we would be free and clear. Michael would flee to Canada. My family and I would leave Chicago with our new nest egg. We would have a new life. We would be free from all the hardships that we were embroiled in. When I arrived, he greeted me with a large toothy grin. As soon as I set foot in his house, I knew something wasn't right. There were tarps everywhere. His home appeared to be under multiple types of construction at once. We made our way through the house and he took me down a flight of stairs. As we descended into the darkness, the temperature decreased dramatically. The stairs seemed to go on forever into oblivion. When we finally reached the bottom, I turned to discover a mostly empty concrete room with a metal safe over 10 feet tall. At the other end of the room, I saw a small table with two chairs. He sat in one of the chairs, motioning for me to sit opposite of him. I am sorry, my friend, he said. I have not been completely honest with you. I sat down thinking he was going to tell me of a hitch in his plan that he'd already fixed. He poured me a drink and then continued to explain. Our ruse is something that has become slightly too complex for my liking. I feel that there is only one alternate route, one that I would be lying if I did not confess was my end goal since the inception of our stratagem. As I sat there, supremely confused, I heard a slight tapping from across the room. It was rhythmic in nature, but faint. I could barely make it out. I nervously drank from the glass that he had given me. Frowning, I nodded for him to continue talking. You see, my friend, I have lived many lives. Some here in Chicago, some in New York, some in Philadelphia, and even for a time in Dallas. My travels have taught me only one thing. A simple and inevitable constant that should be apparent to any self-educated individual with a view to understand the human condition on a deeper level. Fear is our only constant. When those words escaped his lips, I felt a prang of adrenaline spike in my stomach. I suddenly became uncomfortable. I attempted to stand up, but to my shock, my legs did not respond. You see, my friend, there are two different types of entities in this world. The prey and the predator. Looking at the two of us, which do you think is which? He leaned in, grinning again, his eyes sparkling in the dim basement light. I've made my life into 
something of an unconventional temple to silence. I've slaved away at this monastic and solitary pursuit. It's something that is very rarely thought of and even more rarely understood. But we can't blame them, can we? They only know what they've been taught. They are sheep in a row, marching towards their inevitable demise. But me, I know how to live. I know how to celebrate the now. The glorious, frustrating, iridescent now. He sat back as if waiting for me to say something. I didn't. I couldn't. My entire body felt as if I was being pulled downward. My vision began to grow dark. What I am saying, my friend, is that our delightful little scam, well, I may have overstated the falsity of our undertaking. You see, Michael is truly no longer with us, and his body will show up at the morgue. I will collect the insurance policy in exchange for telling your wife where you've run off to. And of course, with who? The realization dawned on me. Aldridge was going to destroy everything I held dear. He knew I would do anything to protect my family, and he had weaponized it against me. Aldridge leaned closer to me. You're drifting off now. You'll never see your family again. But fret not, my friend. I will look after them. In your absence. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Are we all still here? At least in body, if not mind? Perfect. Our next tale is told by Jodie Connor, and we'll find out what she's made of in a story I call The Chase. There were scratches in the floorboards, like someone raked their fingernails across them. My father muttered these words to me as we left the mansion. I wish I had taken him more seriously that day. My father was a tortured artist, a writer with quite the imagination. He often mused out loud, so I didn't think twice when he said odd things. I was the business-minded one and tried to stay planted in the real world so our small finishing company could stay afloat. That summer, my father and I devoted all of our efforts to growing the construction business. We established ourselves a base of clients, some large, some small. 
I usually dealt with them because my father was coarse. He didn't like people. He liked being alone. He liked revising his latest manuscript. He worked hard, but he was constantly resentful of the fact that we were working with our hands. Honestly, I was fine with it. There's something to performing a job and doing it well. My father and I were recommended by a family friend to a rich older man who wanted some work done on his house. We showed up for the first day and were surprised at the size of his home. It was massive, and it looked like it was under construction already by a different contractor. The homeowner introduced himself as Malcolm Wilbury, a tall, thin man with an unfamiliar smell about him. I noticed he had lines around his mouth that made it appear as though he was always smirking. He told us he had just recently taken over the home from his brother and was attempting to finish what his brother had started. My father and I were responsible for building a staircase in one of the front rooms of his house. It connected to a doorway high up on a wall. I asked my father why that doorway had been built, but the stairs had not. His charming reply? Don't ask questions. I rolled my eyes at the old man, and I suddenly had the sinking feeling I was being watched. The hair on the back of my neck stood up. I turned around, but no one was there. We worked in silence for the rest of the day. The feeling of being watched never left me the entire time we were there. At dusk, we packed up our things and left. I was happy to get out of there. As we walked home, my father seemed unsettled. When I asked him what was wrong, he didn't want to answer me. Finally, after some cajoling, he said, The floorboards. There were scratches in the floorboards. The paint was peeled back as if someone's nails were raking across it. We walked the rest of the way home, in silence. As eerie as my father's statements were and how unnerving I found the house, I simply chalked it up to my father's wild imagination. He had done things like this in the past. We needed the money badly, so I played my usual role of hard-nosed businesswoman. My father didn't want to return to the house, but I convinced him to. We worked on that staircase for a few weeks. It was a simple job. We went in, did our work, and then went home. It was finished without much trouble. A few weeks after the job had finished, I was walking through my neighborhood and a man approached me. I didn't recognize him at first. He said, hello, I'm sorry, but do I know you? He seemed lost and slightly confused. And then I recognized the pungent smell in the air. I said, yes, my father and I built a staircase for you. His demeanor changed abruptly. He invited me over to his house, saying that he had another project that he wanted my father and I to tackle. I was uneasy, suggesting that I should have my father get in touch with him. Something seemed off. He persisted and said it couldn't wait. I relented. The prospect of more money was too good to overlook. As soon as we stepped foot in his house again, I knew it was a mistake to be there. Feel free to explore. There's many wonderful secrets this place holds, he said. It didn't seem like there was going to be a job. The house was cold and ghost-like. I took a few steps into the house, racking my brain for an excuse to leave. As I turned around to tell him I was expected home for dinner, he lunged at me with a white rag in his hand. He attempted to cover my nose and mouth with it. I shoved the palm of my hand into his nose as hard as I could. He reeled back, clutching his face. A small river of blood streamed down his lips. I took off, sprinting into the black void of the house and made the first immediate right into some sort of study. I opened the first door I saw, only to smack right into a brick wall. The door led to nowhere. How was that possible? Glancing around the room, I saw another door. I rushed to it and launched myself into a hallway which led to... Another dead end. Doubling back through the hallway, I saw a small, knee-high door. I shot myself through it and into an empty, circular room. Off to the right, there was a small, cramped hallway. I hurried down it, screaming for help. 
my footsteps echoed against the hard wood paneling. I took off, sprinting into the black void of the house and made the first immediate right into some sort of study. I could feel him behind me, his steps matching mine. As I ran, I had the realization that I'd seen all this before. The hallways connected to one another. It was a maze. He was so close to me, I could smell his breath. I didn't know what he would do if he caught me, but I knew it wouldn't be good. I ran for my life. He stopped chasing me. I slowed to catch my breath. I turned to see him standing in a doorway, smiling. I was so caught off guard, I didn't move at all. We stood there, staring at each other for a moment. I instinctually started backing away from him, his head slowly cocked to the side, like a dog. And abruptly, everything went dark. The next thing I knew, I was on my back in a dark, wet place. As my eyes adjusted to the new lighting, things slowly came into focus. I couldn't feel my legs. At first, I didn't comprehend what was happening, and then it began to make sense. Touching my chest, it was damp. My blood was everywhere. I could feel it seeping out of me. Panic made my head swim. The last thing I remember is looking up to see the man peering down at me through what must have been a trap door. And then, nothing but the swelling of my heartbeat, the searing pain the shortness of breath that comes from realizing you're about to die. Poor unfortunate Jody. In the end, though, she did see her father's point, and her heart was in the right place. Until that spike moved it, of course. Let's see if we can move your heart with our next break. But do return. We're just getting started. You're back. You had me worried sick. I thought something horrible may have happened to you. Next, meet Harvard Bellamy Buchanan, an aspiring writer who's down on his luck. But all of that will change in a story I call Writer's Block. I was homeless for roughly three weeks the summer I met William Hilston. I had come to Chicago from Minnesota with nothing more than the clothes on my back, my lucky fountain pen and the dream of being a writer. I left everything behind because my cousin's uncle said he might have some work at a newspaper for me. Might being the operative word. I found myself sitting on a park bench at two in the morning with nowhere to go. The events of the past few weeks had been disappointing at best. There was no job at the newspaper, and no job meant no money, and no money meant nowhere to live. That's when it hit me. The only thing this writer had left to his name was his lucky fountain pen. That was the punchline of a bad joke. I want to die, I said aloud to the darkness around me. And then, there he was, like an angel. He sat next to me and asked, why are you out so late? I was resistant to inform him of the totality of my plight, so I said that I was having a fight with my wife. His body language changed... He was about to leave. I felt silly for lying to a stranger, and I enjoyed his company, so I confessed I wasn't married, and in fact, I had lost nearly everything. I told him that my name was Harvard Bellamy Buchanan, and that the only possession I owned was the fountain pen. 
my mother bought me as a congratulatory gift for starting my new writing position at the Chicago Tribune. He appreciated my honesty and introduced himself as William Hilston. We spoke for a good while after that. As the night drew on, he invited me to his home, saying that he had a macabre artifact from Africa that the Tribune would definitely be interested in. He suggested accompanying him back to his home at once and writing a piece about the artifact as a means of acquiring my dream job. If nothing came of it, at the very least, I would have a warm, comfortable bed to sleep in tonight. I believed this was the dawn of my luck changing. Must be my lucky pen, I thought. I jumped at the opportunity, and I followed him to his home. When we arrived at his house, it was much larger than I thought it would be. I I was expecting to sleep on a couch that night, but as we walked up, He informed me that I was going to be given a room all to myself in the basement. I was taken aback and deeply appreciative. His house was old, with thick stone walls. It looked as though it were under construction. Tarps and heavy machinery were everywhere. We made our way through the depths of the house, winding through a catacomb-like network of hallways. Good God, I joked. If I had to find my way out of this house myself, I probably couldn't. Indeed, he chuckled softly. Ultimately, we ended our journey in a room unlike anything I'd ever seen. It had gold foil walls, a massive chest of drawers, and rugs that appeared to be from all over the world. I was dumbstruck by the opulence on display. After weeks out on the street, the idea of a bed, any bed, was alluring to say the least. But this, this was fit for a king. He said he would return momentarily, and I slowly walked around the room inspecting the decorations. The curtains had to be velvet. The doorknobs must have been silver. It it was jarring to be in a place that was so confrontationally affluent. Obviously, I was not accustomed to surroundings such as those. William returned moments later carrying a tray with food on it. Two days previously, I would have been overjoyed at the thought of a hot meal. But tonight, I was hungry for the answer to a question. If this was what his guest bedroom looks like, what could this artifact be? Was my life about to write itself? Is this how I get my job at the Tribune? Am I on the cusp of becoming a famous writer overnight? I could wait no longer and ask William to show me the artifact. His eyes shrunk just slightly. He seemed as though he wanted to have a meal with me first. But the journalist in me pressed, asking him how long the artifact had been in his possession. He relented, asking me first to don a blindfold. Security purposes he said. Reluctantly, I agreed. He took my hand and led me out of the room. We stumbled this way and that. I had no hope of retracing my steps, as was his intention. We entered a large, echoing room, and that's when he removed my blindfold. We stood in a concrete chamber with no windows. The hard stone walls, the lack of furniture, the chill in the air instilled in me an instant sense of dread. This was not the same home I had just been in. I started to think all of this might have been a mistake. Aside from a few chairs and a small table, the room was empty, and that's when I saw it. A large safe, over ten feet tall. Noticing that my gaze was fixed to the safe, William said, I keep it in there. I would hate for someone to steal what I've worked so hard for. 
my sense of self-preservation overwhelmed any curiosity or hope of fame I had before. I politely declined to see his artifact and suggested that we have that meal he offered. All I wanted was to leave the room, but he insisted, saying, what is in that safe will change the trajectory of your life forever. He pulled open the large metal door and gestured for me to enter the darkened interior. I hesitated, but my manners got the better of me. I obliged and made my way inside. The door swung closed behind me and locked. The silence of the safe was deafening. The only noise I could hear was my own breath. I called out to William, hoping he had accidentally closed the door or that this was some sick joke. I got nothing. No response. There was no artifact. This is exactly what he wanted. He had no intention other than malice. His goal was to lift my hopes sky high, then sink them into a bottomless pit. Sooner or later, the air in the safe would run out, and I would suffer the long and thrashing death of suffocation. Then I felt it in my pocket, my last hope, my lucky pen. I retrieved it and began tapping a rhythm against the steel safe walls. Morse code for SOS. Maybe someone would hear it. Maybe someone would rescue me from this nightmarish hellscape. Maybe this would be the last writing I would ever do. Look at the bright side, cadavers. I'm sure Harvard's mother would be happy to know he finally found a good use for the pen she bought him. In a buying mood yourself? Maybe our next break can help with that. And now, on to our final story. This one will strike a slightly different chord. A simple tale from an unexpected storyteller who reveals all in his story. A faint memory of green paint. My name is J.J. Manzanar, and I am a man of some means. I've worked hard for everything I've accrued in my life, harder than one might think. I've lived in many locales, had numerous professions, and even used a few names. Aldridge, Malcolm, William, countless others. The list goes on and on. I find it a struggle to even remember them all at this point. They're ghosts to me now, ghosts of the people I was, the places I said I lived, the jobs I supposedly had. I've lived in Chicago for the past ten years. I love this city. It is a city that never corrects you. The nooks and crannies enable you to indulge your darkest fantasies, to live out your ultimate goal. How many people can say that? How many individuals live a life without compromise? Not many. Family, financial obligations, social mores, they all stand as prison walls to contain our true selves. This is something that I've been completely accepting of. I've learned to live in the accordance to the expectations of those around me, while secretly carrying out my truest form of societal rebellion. I have constructed a temple to this pursuit. 
I have built it by hiring dozens of contractors to build separate pieces of my puzzle. I have installed numerous trapdoors, secret hallways, and stairwells that have no viable destination. My family amassed wealth during the Great Western Expansion, and I've decided to utilize it to further my goal. When I first bought this house, the entire place was coated with this hideous green paint. I loathed it. As I moved from room to room renovating, I stripped it. I painted over it. I hired contractors to demolish the evidence of what was. Now, with this room being the last to sport this specific shade of green, it serves as a shrine to my horrific accomplishments. I entered this room, the room with the last vestiges of green paint, to see my prize waiting for me. A young woman, brown-haired, strapped to my favorite operating table. She appeared to be still asleep. I walked up to her, inspecting her pulse. It was elevated. The efforts of my chloroform must have been wearing off. I turned to my tools, inspecting them. Which one should I utilize? How should I go about my work? I heard a clink, and then I felt something hit me on the back of the head. I saw stars. I careened to the floor. I could see that she was rising from the bed. She must have regained consciousness some time ago and been lying in wait for me. Hmm. I staggered to my feet, standing between her and the door, her head cocked. She was obviously wondering what I planned to do. I suppose you're feeling confused, I said, stalling. We've never formally met, you see. Well, I've kidnapped you. The stars cleared from my eyes. I could tell she wasn't going to be able to overpower me. I relaxed. I took a few steps away from the door. I placed my utensil back onto the cart that she had knocked over. You shouldn't be awake. It's really something of a miracle, I informed her. I would suggest you lie back on the operating table. Your fate is sealed. The only decision left for you to make is the haste at which your demise arrives. She slowly sat back down to the operating table, looking at me with the terrified innocence of a child. Her eyes grew wider with every passing second. I selected a small curved blade, one of my favorites. As I approached, she snatched one of the belt buckles from the restraints and slammed it into my neck. I was once again on the floor. She had used the sharp metal of the buckle to puncture my flesh. Blood began pouring out of my neck. Instinctively, I plugged the new hole in my throat with my index finger. With my left, I reached out for her. She leapt off the table and began sprinting towards the door. She exited the room and stopped momentarily, obviously surprised by the immenseness of the hallway. In that split second she was paused there, I managed to haul myself to my knees, grab one of the surgical knives, and heave it towards her. The blade planted itself in her back. She crumbled to the floor instantly. 
Lying there for a moment, she crawled out of sight. She's making her way towards the front door, I said to myself. She'll die well. When I finally limped out into the hallway, I found her clasping at the front door. Her fingers were too weak to twist the lock and open the door to freedom. She looked back at me, and I managed to hiss the word, You. Her face steeled. She had resolved to live. There was nothing I could do. She unlatched the door and propelled herself out of the house. She screamed at the top of her lungs, begging for someone to help, then tumbled down the stairs that led to my front door, slamming her head again and again against the cold, unforgiving concrete. She laid lifeless at the foot of my stoop. Good, I thought. My home had claimed one last victim. Then, things went black for me. When I woke up, I was in handcuffs. Before I knew it, the trial was over. The first person to survive my murder mansion happened to also be the woman who fell down my stairs. Unfortunately for me, the fall didn't kill her. She served as the star witness, and I was given the death sentence. Me, J.J. Manzanar, dead by the electric chair. Did you figure out whose house we're in? I knew you would. Dead time listeners are the smartest listeners. It just tears me apart, but our time has come, and I must bid you adieu. I hope you've enjoyed our dead time stories, inspired by serial killers. Come visit us again soon. We have many more short, scary stories to share. Sweet dreams, my little cadavers. <laughs> You've made it through the night. Congrats. Let's get going before that changes. The four stories you've just heard were written by Dave Baker. You can also find more thrilling stories from Graveyard Shift on Ranker.com, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and other connected TV apps. Tonight's production starred Todd Lights, Todd Denson, Ari Eastman, and Benjamin Apple. With editing done by Kelsey Goldberg. I believe you can find your way home from here. Until next time, farewell.